You're listening to Fundshack. I'm Ross Butler, and today I'm speaking with Josh Lerner, Professor of Investment Banking at Harvard. Professor Lerner teaches venture capital and private equity, one of Harvard's biggest elective courses. His research focuses on private capital, and he has many published papers and books on the subject, including The Money of Innovation, Patent Capital, The Commingled Code, and Boulevard of Broken Dreams. He also founded and runs the not-for-profit Private Capital Research Institute. In this episode, among other things, we will look at how to nurture a thriving entrepreneurial and venture capital ecosystem. Professor, welcome to Fundshack. Just after the great financial crisis, you published a book called Boulevard of Broken Dreams, which I read at the time. And it's one of the more poetic titles, I'd say, in the pantheon of venture capital literature. So well done on that. Um, And in it, you made a very nuanced argument, I thought, for the necessity of uh, state intervention, of public sector uh, support to at least kind of seed and nurture venture capital ecosystems in their formative years and decades. But you also equally, I think, put as much emphasis on the pitfalls and of not getting it wrong, and hence the title of the book, I guess. So I'd like to look at both of those those angles. I mean, I guess I'll start by saying, do you still believe that state support is necessary? And if so, kind of why do you think that is? First of all, thanks so much for the chance to be here, and it's great to get a chance to talk about these really important issues. I think that the answer is yes, that the nature of venture ecosystems, which in some sense are even more compelling today than was the case 15 years ago, given the kind of growth we've seen in both new technologies like artificial intelligence, but as well as just simply the creation of wealth associated with these new ventures, with jobs and the like, that this is a tough process. You know, we'd like to say it's just a matter of sprinkling a little pixie dust and it takes care of itself, but it seems it's a really slow process of trying to get a lot of things coming together. And in a way, there's an instinct to look at Silicon Valley and say, wow, that's great. I can just clone this and carry it over and just get the the right looking buildings, a fancy university, a few fancy professors, and everything will take care of itself from there. And I think everything we've seen about creating these kinds of clusters suggests that it's a much longer and much harder process than that, where we have to get a bunch of things coming together. You know, were we trying to put a label on it? We might say increasing returns, right? That it's really hard to be the first entrepreneur in a city in a category. By the time there's a hundred people buzzing around doing stuff in that area, it's, it's much easier. But that process from going to one to a hundred of really getting the plane off the runway is where the challenge really lies. But do we not need to distinguish between kind of general entrepreneurialism and, and business creation and scale up and all of that stuff, and then a formal institutional venture capital sector? You can presumably mm-hmm. you can have a thriving innovation ecosystem without necessarily a, a venture capital ecosystem. Is that true? Absolutely. Um, and certainly we can think about the history of you know many much of Europe as saying that when we look at many of the really critical technologies, everything from internet to biotech, European academics and researchers were right at the the front lines. In many cases, they were there first. The challenge that I think 
is pretty well documented for much of Europe has been really that translation of the innovation of the uh, researchers with great ideas into businesses and ultimately into prosperity. And it's really that translational thing of going from the innovation to the ecosystem, though all the stuff that goes with it, where the intermediaries play a critical role. Mm. And you you make the case for state intervention primarily, I think, by looking at historical case studies, Silicon Valley being an important one. People tend to think of Silicon Valley as the cutting edge of free markets. But mm-hmm. as you explain, it's, it's not that at all. And I, in fact, I think, you know, to a large degree in the early years, it looked like the kind of the R&D wing of the US military. And to some degree, mm-hmm. it's still very closely related to that. But the, I guess the, 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 the difficulty is the, the very limited number of case studies there are mm. uh, with regards to successful venture ecosystems. Mm. And so my, my question really is, and you are very nuanced in the book about this, but mm. what's your kind of confidence level that let's say in the next 20 or 30 years, there won't spring up a vibrant venture ecosystem in, a, in an economy that currently doesn't have one where there was no proactive um, state support or, or, or intervention? Great question. So I think one observation I'd make is that when you look around the globe today, it seems like every corner you look at, governments are doing policies to to do stuff, right? Um, Certainly you look at things as diverse as Australia and the Emirates and Brazil, and you see very active policies to try to uh, nurture, you know, high potential entrepreneurs and the intermediaries that help make it uh, uh, you know, make them succeed. I should say that's more than venture capitalists, right? That we've seen, particularly in the last decade or so, a lot of interest in trying to boost angel investors as well. And I think there's often a sense that the angels will, will wander where the venture capitalists fear to tread, right? In terms of, right. I mean, in a way, when you look at many angels, they're bright, sophisticated, successful people, but they also are doing this not just simply to maximize their bottom line, right? They're getting some, you know, real enjoyment out of working with entrepreneurs, trying to, in many cases, try to boost the economic development in their place. And they can really play that bridge role in early, in, 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 in the early, early stages. So we, we are seeing, you know, a very significant uptick in terms of the kinds of interventions that, that are there. We, we recently completed a project where we just looked up to the time of, uh, up to the time of COVID and tried to identify all the programs we could find around the, around the globe that were aimed at boosting entrepreneurial finance or, or the intermediaries that provide that capital. And, our, our compilation came up with somewhere in the order of 900 such programs in the last uh, last couple decades. You know, pretty much everywhere in the planet you look, except for you know a few corners of Africa and the like. Did you look at how many of them had been successful, or in your own subjective view, where has this been done well? You know, I think you you came in at the beginning saying it's a little qualitative, right? And I agree with it that you know certainly when I feel when I'm in the, asked, for instance, to give advice to a government or just give a talk, I, you know, I always say a lot of what we're doing here is not at the, you know, right. When we try to, when we 
try to write an article, submit an article to the journal of finance, everything has to be at the 95% level of confidence, right? With two stars and all the regressions and, you know, and they really like it when it's 99% confidence, right? Mm -hmm. Here, we're definitely in the realm where if we feel we're 70% confident, we feel really happy mm -hmm. that this is more often right than uh, right than wrong. So there certainly is not real certainty on many of these things. But at the same time, when you look at the data, you do see that some of the messages that I and others have been pushing with, first of all, government intervention can make a positive difference, at least in the right places at the right times. And secondly, that the provision of matching funds and you know trying to get a signal from the market as to what's where the money should go is really important. Those two things are very much corroborated in the in the large sample studies as well. Uh, right. So I was going to ask you what what are the what are your key recommendations? So so sorry. Could you could you elaborate on on those? So did you say it's you got to identify the need effectively? Was that your second point? Right. So I think certainly one of the challenges that public programs have faced has been the sense of saying, let's just go and do whatever the flavor of the moment is, right? That, you know, when you think about it, most politicians and most senior administrators are no doubt well-intentioned, but they're not deep students of um, economics and economic development. And even if you are a deep student in it, predicting what the future is, is really hard, right? So in a way to come in and say, you know, what, what so often happens is people look around at what other places are doing and just simply emulate what's going on, right? So, you know, you know, one example, of course, is biotech. I think an example I've used many times over the years is a paper by my um, friend Marianne Feldman, where she documented that in the United States, at the time she was looking, 49 out of the 50 states had programs encouraging biotech ventures, which were sort of predicated on the proposition that their state had some unique competitive advantage in biotechnology, right? And the only one which didn't was uh, the Alaska, where which had one which, where the um, former governor and former vice presidential candidate, uh, Sarah Palin, uh, abolished it on the grounds that it made no sense for Alaska in one of her few uh, moments of really good public <laughs> <Clarity>. policy. <laughs> right. When we look at that, you say that's absurd, right? Because no doubt there are a number of places where having a biotech cluster makes sense, but 49 out of 50 is unlikely to be there, right? And we've seen the same thing play out with clean tech and various other uh, various other things as well, right? And when you ask the question of what's right, it, it often is hard to say sitting in the ivory tower, but once you actually see it work in practice, it actually makes sense. So I remember one of the Australian states had put a big effort in terms of encouraging research in terms of uh, life sciences. They had, you know, built all these fancy labs and he had uh, a bunch of professors they had hired for big sums to come over and, you know, set up these facilities. But they were very frustrated because they were, you know, not getting the 
the spin outs that were there, the, the, the spin outs that were coming out of those labs were either going to Sydney if they were good. And if they were really good, they were going to, you know, San Diego or San Francisco. Hmm. And meanwhile, when you looked at saying, what are the startups that are doing really well and getting a lot of financing and market traction, it was things like using drones for low water agriculture, uh, software for the mining industry and stuff like that. In other words, companies that had some, you know, real rationale for being located there because of customer demand and being able to do really cutting edge applications, right? And, you know, it's it's hard to sit in the ivory tower and figure that out in advance, mm. even if afterwards you say, aha, that makes a lot of sense. And in a way that really sort of speaks to the the power of market signals. In other words, mm. saying, let's, you know, see who's sort of able to get traction there and then help those people, uh, help those people get to the next level rather than the, you know, more, you know, technocratic idea of saying, mm. here's our plan and we say the answer is X, right? Mm. So, so the local dynamics is, is critical, but it's very difficult even for politicians in that locality to know right. what they really are in advance. The lesson, therefore, presumably, is don't be too specific with regards to your intervention and, and where you want the money to go and what you want it to specifically achieve. Is that, is that fair enough? Absolutely. That, right. I mean, we, um, you know, we, we just have thousands of examples of not just politicians who get it wrong, but even people who get it wrong about their own discoveries. We have uh, across the way here, the first uh, programmable computer that was developed at Harvard during World War II. And there's a famous quote from the professor who invented that, you know, like 10 years later, they said, is this computer going to be uh, useful for doing things like helping um, department stores send out bills? And he was like, if this computer, which we did to do calculations for developing the atom bomb, differential equations, ends up being useful for department stores, I'll regard that as the biggest miracle in the history of humanity, right? So even there, the, the dude who had actually put this thing, to conceptualize this and put this thing together, couldn't see around the next mm. bend as to how IT technology was really going to, uh, was really going to evolve. Mm. So in some sense to say to a public figure, oh, you figure out how all this sort of really complex mm. uh, stuff is going to bake out is really, um, is really mission impossible. That's really the miracle of Silicon Valley, isn't it? Because you made the point in your book, and, and as I mentioned earlier, it's, it's very much one way or another, the military has either been a, in a, a customer or mm. a funder of ventures. But, the, but in another economy, that's kind of where it would have begun and ended. But, but with Sil right. the Silicon Valley's genius is to take whatever it is, global positioning systems, and mm. allow everyone to find their way. Right. Uh, and now, that, yeah, go on. Absolutely. That in a way, that sort of serendipity or basically having just a ton of really bright people who aren't afraid to fail and aren't being punished for failing, mm. being able to sort of play around in the sandbox and say, what could this, what is the next step that could be done with this? You know, fully cognizant of the fact that most of these ideas aren't going to uh, aren't going to work out. But mm. if one gets that right combination, it can be enormously powerful. But I still come back to the point that 
It's like there's only one Silicon Valley, and and that's true even in America. Like if there were three or four Silicon Valleys, mm. then maybe it would make sense for other countries to say we need one of these. But there's there's one. It, it looks like a real anomaly. Maybe I'm being too cynical. Maybe there are other clusters that are smaller there, and, and I don't know. I don't know. Mm. Um, yeah. But from a from a layman's perspective, it does look like a real. You know, you've got America, global power. You've got Silicon Valley, one cluster. End of story, and everything else is just miles behind. Is that unfair? I hope so. I think the answer is it is unfair. Right? <laughs> okay. If you if you looked at a chart of you know just a pie chart of venture capital in its allocation over the years, you know exactly if you if we took the snapshot as of two thousand one and looked at it, basically the U.S. would represent eighty five percent of the pie, and once you added in the slices for UK, a little bit of France, Japan, Australia, Canada, right? You were basically at 90, you know, the the mid 90s in terms of accounting for the accounting for the pie, you know, and there was just every whole rest of the world was just a tiny little sliver, right? Today, when we look at it, or at least in 2022, you know, what you see is the US is still the biggest piece. It's It's probably 40 something percent in terms of the pie. But we've got, you know, any number of other slices of pie, which are very significant. Obviously, you know, China, the red red slice being quite big. But, you know, today, India is representing close to 10% of the venture capital investment around the, uh, around the world. And we see, you know, significant clusters in a lot of other places as, as, as well, with a lot of the growth having taken place not so much in the, you know, again, when you look at relative growth, because the overall pie has grown, but the growth in the slice of the pie being most dramatic in the developing world in various, in various places. So it's, you know, I think the view that this is just a game about the U.S. or just a game that, that's about Silicon Valley is, is misleading. It is, it is, I mean, certainly there's still this sense of when you go within particular country, right? When you go to uh, Sweden and look around, right? The vast majority of the action is going to be in, in, in Stockholm, right? It's still a game where there's just a lot of, you know, what us nerds would call agglomeration effects. And we might just call lumpiness or stickiness mm -hmm. where people all want to be together with, uh, all, all to, want to be together with each other. But it, when you look at the aggregate trend, it has really been to, uh, you know, go from just one big lump to, you know, a series of lumps around the globe. Yeah. Yeah. OK, well, that's good news. So there is there is progress and I'm being too cynical. Right. and I'm glad to hear it. Um, another. So you could probably tell that I've recently reread your book because um, another point that you made and you put this so brilliantly and I hadn't thought of it this way. It's very simple. You basically say there's a couple of ways that you can support venture capital. Mm -hmm. One is to one is to create an environment whereby it thrives and another is right. to increase the availability of capital, you know, the, the equity gap type thing. Mm -hmm. And one, the former increase, the former increases the uh, demand for venture capital, as you say, mm -hmm. and the latter increases the, su the supply. Mm -hmm. um, which would you say is the most effective? Well, I think it's certainly the case that you can't have the one without the other. And in particular, I think there's this sort of natural instinct that is regardless of the political system, regardless of the culture or the religion, we see this natural inclination of political leaders 
to want to hand out big checks to people, right? It's just somehow, as a leader, that's what makes gives you the warm and fuzzies in terms of saying, I'm doing my job. I'm going to get uh, lots of happiness and recognition for having uh, having done this. And one thing we can say with a lot of certainty is just that strategy of pill mill distributing funds without having done the hard work of, you know, setting the table of making an environment that's conducive to entrepreneurship is very unlikely to be successful. And yet we've seen this again and again, you know, I think that, you know, there are any number of classic experiences along these, uh, along these lines, probably with the, uh, you know, Japanese being the most famous of policymakers who, you know, were bound and determined to create a high potential venture VC ecosystem and said, let's just skip all the other stuff and go directly into dumping money into the entrepreneurial ecosystem. And as long as they were shoveling money into the system, there were people there willing to take it. Mm. But as soon as they had to, you know, because of financial pressures, you know, scale back the spigot, the venture industry just disappeared, right? And in a way, it was a artificial industry that was being propped up by the public funds. And you say, why, why was that? Are Japanese people not entrepreneurial? Are they not smart? Are they very smart? And certainly you walk around downtown Tokyo and you see big signs saying Toyota and stuff like that. And these were real entrepreneurs who created companies, you know, out of, out of nothing and created tremendous wealth from it. But that being said, you know, for much of the period, the government was trying to do this boosting of the venture sector. It was an environment which was really stacked against the entrepreneurs. You know, first of all, of course, the um, labor market, you know, you could quit your job at Mitsubishi, but once you quit, there was no way back in, right? Which really raised the barriers to going and starting something. Uh, You were definitely burning your bridges behind you. The tax laws, the labor laws, you know, a thousand and one other things were sort of rigged in a way that really made it unfriendly to be an entrepreneur and where it was a real struggle as a result. And I think, again, you know, why didn't the government address that? Well, a lot of that was really hard, right? You know, we know that anytime you sort of have regulatory or policy reform, there's lots of vested interests yelling and pushing in a bunch of different ways. In some sense, it's a lot easier to say, we're just going to go hand out, hand out mm-hmm. funds. But I think that really has to be the, the, the first, first step. Do you have a view on uh, what's going on in Europe and the EU's initiatives mm-hmm. to support venture capital? There's certainly been a lot of money handed out mm-hmm. by European Investment Fund and, and others. And certainly there's been some significant changes, positive changes in terms of some of the table setting kind of stuff, right? So if you think about, you know, a couple decades ago, it, you know, in a place like not just Italy, but even Switzerland, you know, you had this sort of extremely unforgiving regime in terms of, uh, in terms of treatment of failure, right? As I understand it, the extreme form of that was not only were in, as an entrepreneur, if you were an officer of a company which went, which failed, were you banned from being an officer of another company? 
But even as a board member, mm. you basically were, you know, hexed from from doing that, right? Which, of course, no doubt if you were sitting at the uh, Swiss business school and some student came to you saying, will you be on the board of my startup, <laughs> right? Your, your answer would be no way, right? Uh, so, you know, there's certainly been some positive uh, positive changes in terms of uh, some of these areas. And, and certainly you look at many corners of uh, of Europe, we talked about Stockholm already, right, where you do see a lot of this sort of virtuous cycle, and I think we could put London in the same category, where you do see the, you know, just much more development of a entrepreneurial culture and process. I think on the other side, you know, you could certainly ask an impolite question, which is, given the massive investment of public funds, uh, has the return on investment been as high as it ought to have been? And I think there, you know, my answer would probably be no. And if I was to highlight one issue or one problem, it seems like in many cases they're starting off with a big lump of butter and then spreading it super thinly over, I don't know what the number is now, 28 or 27 pieces of toast. Mm. And even on each piece of toast, they want to put some money up in northern Lapland and some money money out in the extreme western end of a country and so forth, right? You know, it gets even even at a country level, rather than putting one pat, there's this tendency to want to spread it out extremely broadly. And, you know, in some sense, that's appealing, right? It's sort of fair that why let one place be, get all the goodies and other places not get to goodies, right? And in particular, you might argue the need for economic development is probably way higher up in northern Lapland than it is in Stockholm, where people are pretty pretty prosperous and happy. But it ends up being really counterproductive because once you get that, you know, one thousandth of a millimeter layer of butter spread all across the board, you can't taste it and it doesn't have any kind of real positive effect, right? It basically ends up ignoring the lumpy nature of this process. And I think that's to some extent cut against the, you know, efficiency with which uh, money has been money has been spent. Mm. So just as an aside, back in 2010, I was working actually at the European Private Equity and Venture Capital Association, mm. which is now called Invest Europe. Uh, at the time, we put out a venture capital white paper. So we all read your book. And uh, we had a, a chap on to comment from the EIF called Thomas Mayer. And so the conclusion that, that Thomas and, and we came to was kind of precisely what you just said. And, and, and the solution that one of the solutions we put forward in the white paper was it was mainly focused on, on what you're saying, increasing the conditions to increase the demand for venture capital, mm. but also to try and um, uh, take the source of public funds one step removed from uh, mm-hmm. from the EIF. So we, you create a kind of a fund of funds, and, right. and that allows the market to allocate to you know to pick the winners rather than the, it. It's still online if anyone's interested in reading it. Um, but that was where we got to. But obviously Europe's difficult because it is intensely political, obviously. But I, I, I certainly I'm very sympathetic with this notion of saying to put as much distance between the politicians on the one hand and the entrepreneurs on the other is, is I think, a great, great guiding principle there. So, you know, when you think about some of the efforts that have been successful, albeit at a sort of smaller scale, so you can think about something like, 
New Zealand venture investment fund, they tried to create a body to take the public funds and allocate it where they put a real moat around it to influence the process of somebody from parliament calling up and saying, my brother is trying to <laughs> launch a fund and can you talk to him and all that kind of shenanigans that we know is, you know, all all too often the part and parcel of the process. I mean, this is, this is not a popular message pretty much hmm. anywhere in the uh, globe. I remember once testifying before some Senate committee and some very distinguished and reputable senator from uh, a somewhat far corner of the Wild West, you know, said, ah, this is just a sign that you're a Harvard elitist who just wants you kind of people on the coast to do really better and don't care about us. And <laughs> with that kind of framing, you knew the conversation was not going to go terribly well. Well, good for you for putting out unpopular messages because someone's got to do it. <laughs> um have you um, been following, so I'm in, currently in London, just had something called the Mansion House Reforms, where uh, our government has encouraged British pension funds to allocate significantly, well, from mm -hmm. a very, very low base anyway, to, yeah. to private capital in general. And obviously mm -hmm. the press release focuses on, on venture capital. Sure. Have you any thoughts on that kind of corralling of local institutional invest, investment vehicles into the sector? I, I, I must admit I've got a fair degree of caution there. And it's... Again, you can say this is simply anecdote, but we have had a number of experiences in the past. I think one of the great case studies was that of uh, the experience in Australia in the early uh, in the early 2000s, where there was a real effort on the part of the government that was in charge then then to uh, strong arm the super funds, the, you know, basically the pension, the pension funds, which are massive due to the mandatory savings that they have in Australia to put money into local venture funds. And, you know, again, it was well-intentioned in terms of what they were trying to do, but it was a situation where the industry itself was extremely young. In many cases, not that the people running the funds were not that good and where certainly it couldn't accommodate the kinds of funds that the super funds were being asked to put into it. And the results were, you know, bad in the short run, which is to say a lot of money got put into these nascent venture funds, which weren't able to wisely invest it and ended up with, you know, basically a lot of money being wasted. But the real consequences were in not just the few years afterwards, but really the decades afterwards, it just created this extremely bad taste in the mouth of the super funds around doing venture type investments, particularly locally. Mm. And you know, they were like, maybe we'll give a little money to Carlisle or KKR, but we're certainly not going to put any money into any Aussie bloke who shows up here talking mm. about doing venture capital here. Right. And it became almost this, you know, it became counter, you know, self counterproductive, right? In the sense that they were so negative on this that, you know, it almost became an active aversion to doing venture investing and an under, in a unwillingness to say the market is very different today than it was, you know, 15, 15 years ago. That's sort of gradually changing, but it's been, it really had a unintended consequence and a very long hangover associated with it. Mm -hmm. Um, and I worry a little bit that, um, I think it's often very tempting on the part of policymakers to look around and say, here's a big pot of money. Let me just solve my problem 
by reaching into it and using it over here. But I think that without really making sure that there's an attractive set of ventures out there, mm. it can be pretty problematic. It's it's not just tempting for the politicians. It's also, I think, tempting for the for the industry itself, of which of which I kind of count myself as part. And with these mansion house reforms, I've been, you know, you know, people have been going around giving each other high fives. You know, there's this massive rush of capital coming into the industry. That's got to be good news. I'm a big believer in the power of private capital, but I'm but I'm asking you this line of questioning because, of course, there is I there is another side to it, which is a little bit more concerning, um, which is you know maybe long term this is this is a risk and that, you know, the press release that the government put out, put some really, was very specific about how it was going to improve the performance of British pension funds. Governments can say that kind of thing, private sector institutions <laughs> can't, but it's certainly, I think it is, it is a bit of a concern. And, but you can understand that the industry is all for it because they can't change the wider environment. One thing they can do is change the, they can, they can lobby very narrowly for more funds for themselves. And so um, there aren't that many people kind of sitting on the sidelines calling for kind of the, the bigger picture and, and a little bit of caution. Now, it's, um, it, I mean, certainly this is a chicken and egg problem and anything that can sort of shortcut the, that conundrum is obviously appealing. But, you know, what I think one ends up being, you know, keenly sensitive after looking at enough cases mm. to this sort of law of unintended consequences and how things that seem appealing end up can come back to uh, uh, to bite one. What about patents? I see you've done a, a quite a lot of extensive work on the importance of patent uh, regimes in order to spur innovation. What's the, the situation there in, in, in the US and elsewhere? The good news with patents is that they really do allow one as an entrepreneur or even a proto-entrepreneur to get protection for one's idea and be able to use that protection to more confidently go and approach corporates for strategic alliances, potential investors, and the like. And, you know, it's a very intriguing paper by some academics here in the States as well as in Sweden, where they looked at uh, entrepreneurs who got slightly bigger, broader patents and slightly narrower ones, but where it was really much more a function of which patent examiner was doing the review of the patent more than anything else. And what they showed is that those entrepreneurs or those proto-entrepreneurs who got the broader patents ended up being more successful subsequently, really, again, suggesting that patents can be a really positive thing for entre entrepreneurship, given just, you know, how challenging the position you are starting off is. On the other hand, <laughs> and sadly, there always is another hand, right? We've also seen some, you know, real abuses in the U.S. system, right? And this has been much, we're the, at the extreme end here, but, you know, the, you know, the sort of patent gamesmanship of people basically, you know, often self-styled entrepreneurs, but who are basically doing nothing beside litigating uh, patents. And, you know, if you're an entrepreneur trying to build a real company and you get a letter from one of these persons, you know, it basically is framed as give me $50,000 or I'm going to sue you. Right. And mm. in most cases, picking up the phone and calling a fancy patent attorney, you know, the, the first click on the taxi is basically $50,000. Right. So they've they've 
they've configured it in a way that it's often considerably cheaper to just give them the money and have them go away rather than uh, fight this thing. But the consequence is, of course, that it becomes a you know, self-perpetuating kind of thing, almost a innovation innovation tax. So there really is this both this bright side and this dark side there. And again, were we uh, was American public policy a little bit more together, we would have figured out ways to, you know, try to accent the positive and downplay the negative. So there's no there's no easy answer with regards to regards to kind of IP law and there's nowhere in the world that you think are particularly kind of a, a good case well, model. I think Europe is better, you know, right. if only because the you know, I think the quality of the examination system. I think one of the big issues here is that, you know, not only are patent examiners not paid very much, but they're under tremendous pressure in terms of quotas to get throughput in terms of this. So even if uh, you get a patent and you sort of think it's wrong or problematic, so, so forth, you know, right, you've got your boss looking at your computer output and saying you're not moving fast enough here, right? Mm. Even if Ultimately, you know, that patent ends up doing, you know, hundreds of millions or billions of dollars of distortions to the economy. You know, you're under your pressure to do your eight hours in that patent and go on to the next one and the next one and the next one. So it's certainly a system that is ripe for a little bit of improvement. So I noticed from your your bio that you uh, graduated from Yale and you, you looked at physics and the history of technology. And right. the reason I bring that up is that, um, well, I've been thinking rather a lot recently about, you know, the the scientific endeavor for good and for bad. And there's the new movie out, isn't there? The Robert Oppenheimer movie, which I haven't actually right. seen. There's this, um, there was this phrase, not so common now, but a few years ago in Silicon Valley about move fast and break things. And it's like, you know, just, just innovate, 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 and something good will come of it. And I just wonder if you've got any views on, on, on that and on the scientific endeavor and its its dangers and uh, the our ability to I don't know apply so say say I'm a venture capitalist to apply kind of an ethical caution to, to innovation it's a great question you know I teach uh, a class for undergraduates over in the engineering school and you know certainly I'm surrounded by uh, youthful founders who are not spending a, a deep amounts of time contemplating the implications of what they're, uh, what they're, they're, what they're doing. Right. But I think when we sort of step back and say, how do people get into trouble? Right. And in particular, when we look at many of the, um, you know, boneheaded moves made by some of the most successful entrepreneurs, at least in our country, you say, how is it they were so blind and not thinking through the broader picture? And a lot of it is because, you know, A, they probably just studied technology and we're like, we're not going to bother with those sort of soft kind of classes where these, you know, painful, complicated questions that can't be resolved with a few equations lurk, right? And B, you know, they're under, you know, whether self-inflicted or inflicted by the outside pressures, they're under, you know, so much time pressure that they're never stopping to sort of step back and think, what is this? What, are, what can go wrong? And, and so forth. And in some sense, you know, clearly you're never going to have a situation where you have, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, 
you know, entrepreneurial venture as a think tank where everyone's spending, you know, months and years contemplating, you know, every ethical application of these things, right? There's always going to be an element of experimenting just simply because by the time you know the answer, Mm. it's probably too, the opportunity is, is too late. But at the same time, I think that it's absolutely essential to have some of that, uh, awareness and this willingness to question baked into the entrepreneurial, the entrepreneurial system. And I think those who have neglected that, you know, in, in many cases, it's ended up coming back to, mm. uh, to haunt them at some later point. I heard this really scary story about, I think it was in uh, Princeton and there was an experiment going on with regards to gene editing. And it was, I think it was CRISPR technology. And it was only by accident that one of the students came in over the weekend and realized that it was turning everything to, to slime. And the professor has, was reported as saying that if it had leaked out, it may have ended terrestrial life on earth, uh, all green life. And it's like, ah, well, that sounds dangerous. <laughs> that sounds <great. laughs> <You know? laughs> so great. Look, professor, thanks so much for, for sparing your thoughts. And, you know, maybe you come to London next year and we'll, and we'll kind of pick up where we left off because there's lots more to talk about. Absolutely. I'm really looking forward to Act 2. Thank you so much for the invitation to talk about all this stuff. My pleasure. You've been listening to the Fun Shack podcast, which has had more than 100,000 listens, but only about five reviews. And I think I left one of them. I know it's a bit fiddly, but it's easier from your phone and it's very easy to leave a rating. On Apple, for example, make sure you're subscribed, then go to your library, click on Fun Shack, scroll almost to the bottom, beneath the episodes and you'll see ratings and reviews. Give us a five, leave a comment. It's all the payment I ask. Thank you kindly.